For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. So brothers and sisters, in our, in our study of Revelation now, uh, we are considering, in this book, we're considering visions of the church age that are given to God's end times or eschatological prophet, John, right? John has been commissioned in Revelation chapter 10. He's God's prophet to this age, as it were, as he's given visions then of these cycles, visions of events that take place during this age, an age in which we currently live. Uh, It's an age that comprises the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ until his return. And it's in that age or in that revelation that through rich symbolism, through symbolism that has its roots in redemptive history, particularly Old Testament redemptive history, it's through that symbolism with its roots in a prior age that we see the promised judgment of God typified in the, in the Old Testament now being poured out during this age, poured out upon unbelieving earth dwellers that live during this time period. With each open seal or with each blast of the trumpet, what we're seeing is we're seeing a different visionary or different symbolic aspects of this judgment that is being poured out during this age, each cycle comprising the age in which we live. So we see during that time in those judgments that are being poured out, we see temporal, we see physical aspects of that judgment being poured out. So we see pestilence, we see famine, we see war, we see physical death. But also behind those physical or temporal judgments, we see spiritual judgments as well. Uh, We see spiritual aspects of those plagues being poured out, each of those seals being opened, each of those trumpets being sounded. And so behind those physical aspects, we see the activity of Satan. We see hordes of demons being unleashed upon the earth. We see false teaching, we see lies, we see deceit, and we see not only physical death, we see spiritual death. So in addition to the the various depictions of God's promised judgments all being poured out during this age, we're also at the same time, we're giving a glimpse, given a glimpse of God's providential care, God's love and concern for his church, for his people. So at the same time we see all those judgments being poured out, we're also given a glimpse of the church. In the first uh, of the seven cycles, there's an emphasis in the entire cycle on those seven representative churches and particularly the witness of the church in this present evil age. And the Lord himself is seen there as the one who walks amidst the lampstands and taking, taking care of his church. Uh, in each of the subsequent, uh, subsequent cycles, namely the cycle of the seals and now the cycle of trumpets, before that cycle ends, in the midst of those judgments being poured out, and as those judgments were, are being ramped up toward the end of the age, we're also given a glimpse of the church and the Lord, as it were, walking amidst the, lamp, the lampstands. Uh, we're given an interlude. It's a literary parenthesis. And the purpose of that parenthesis, it happened between the sixth and seventh seals, and now a parenthesis given between the sixth and the seventh trumpets. The purpose of that parenthesis is to give us an exam, um, a vision, if you will, of the church. And in particular, the work of the church, the witness of the church during this age. Now that vision 
is placed, that vision of the church, that glimpse of the church in her work as the people of God, that vision is placed at the end of the cycle in each case. It's an interlude that comes just before the end of that cycle, as if to say, in the midst of all this that's going on, all of those judgments that are being poured out, we're not forgotten. And we're not forgotten. In the midst of all that, we have our place in this cycle, in this age. And the Lord is, we're at the center of that cycle. We're united to him. We're doing his work. And so while God's judgments are being poured out on unbelieving earth dwellers, the church is there also doing its work. We're identified with Jesus Christ in that way. Uh, There's a sense in which at the very end of the cycle, just before the return of Jesus Christ, we see the church depicted as if to say we are his. We're connected to him. We're identified with him. He's coming back for us, right? He's coming back to usher in his own. Come up here, it says in Revelation 11, to call his own to himself. Uh, He's coming back to take him, to be with him where he is, John 14, right? And if we're with him, As God works all things together toward their consummated end, it's a reminder, again, that we're his. We are his witnesses, his body, his bride. So this afternoon, we've come to the end of this third cycle, the end of the cycle of trumpets. We've arrived uh, at the end of that cycle. The seventh angel is about to blast his trumpet, announcing that the day of the Lord has come, that great and terrible day of the Lord. Uh, And let's remember, as we consider now the end of the cycle, let's remember how we got here. At the opening of chapter 11, if you remember, uh, this is this literary parenthesis in which we see a vision, a symbolic depiction of the church. At the opening of chapter 11, God marks off his people. He bounds them. He measures them off. It's synonymous with sealing. In the cycle of the seals, he seals his own people on their foreheads. Here at the beginning of Revelation chapter 11, he bounds them. He marks them off. Those who worship him, in the most holy place are distinguished from those who are trampling the courts on the outside. They are those who enter the presence behind the veil, the presence of God behind the veil, where our forerunner has entered for us. In verse two, he divides that holy place where his people worship, um, and he divides that holy place from the courts outside, the courts outside where the nations have gathered, uh, courts where they're trampling underfoot, the courts of the temple, and they're trampling them underfoot, as we've talked about, with error, with idolatry, with false religion. And it's been given there at the beginning of Revelation 11, it's been given to the nations to trample the court and the holy city for the first half of Daniel's 70th week. For three and a half years, their reference is 42 months. And it's been given to the Lord's witnesses there to be witnesses against them for the first half of Daniel's 70th week for three and a half years or 1,260 days. So we see these references to the prophecy of Daniel. And again, to remember, in recording these visions that are given to the apostle John, John is taking his ink pen, as it were, and dipping his pen in the ink of the Old Testament to write what he sees in Revelation, to write about the visions, the things that he's seeing and hearing. So a lot of this is pulling from the Old Testament. So to understand Revelation, in order to understand this vision, this revelation, you have to understand your Old Testament. We have to be able to understand that portion of our Bible. And the more that we understand Old Testament, the more that we can understand Revelation. So then in verses four through six, the Lord's witnesses, they go out in the power and in the spirits of the prophets who went before them. We see language there related to Moses, to Elijah, to Jeremiah, to Ezekiel. And they're empowered by God to accomplish their task. They're preserved by God through tribulation, 
that tribulation persecution that inevitably accompanies their task, and they're assured by God that their witness is accomplishing all that God intends through it. He is at work through their witness, right? In everything that we do, God is at work accomplishing his ends. That should be very encouraging to us. As we go out and witness for the Lord Jesus Christ, as we live as witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ, our witness, our life, our testimony, our example is not in vain. Our preaching is not in vain. Our work is not in vain. God is accomplishing everything that he intends through the lives, through the witness of his church, his people. He is accomplishing all that he intends to accomplish. We shouldn't be discouraged in the work that he's given us to do or in our weakness, often our failure to do it well. We shouldn't be discouraged. God is the one who is at work through it. Now, there will come a time, we see it in Revelation 11, at which they will complete their work at which they will complete their witness and their testimony will in effect come to an end. So in verses seven through 10 then, this section of text describes a period of severe tribulation at the end of the age. In the words of our Lord from Matthew 24 on the Mount of Olives, there will be great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. All of the trouble, all the difficulty, all the adversity, all the tribulation is ramping up Right? What we experience is what our Lord describes as the beginning of sorrows, literally the beginning of birth pains, the beginning of contractions, if you will. And those contractions are going to increase in frequency and in severity until the birth of a new age, as it were, at the end. There will be great tribulation. The Lord says, unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. Well, it's a period of great tribulation in Revelation 11, that represents the second half of Daniel's 70th week. And here it's a shortened period represented in Revelation 11 is three and a half days, right? It fits what the Lord is saying in Matthew 24. Days in which an ascending beast makes war with them, overcomes them and kills them. They are days in which this world gloats over them, heaps scorn and derision upon them. Days in which it would appear that this world, that unbelieving earth dwellers gain some great victory over them. However, verses 11 through 13, and again, borrowing from our Lord's description in Matthew 24, the Lord says immediately after the tribulation of those days, we're talking about the very end of the age. After the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with the sound of a great trumpet. They will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. In the words of Revelation chapter 11, verse 12, they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. Now, all this is described to John as the second in a series of three woes. Verse 14, the second woe is past. Upon a completion of that tribulation, that great tribulation, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Won't be long now, in other words. It's coming post haste, right? So the third of these three woes then is represented by the blast of the seventh trumpet. If you remember, these three woes were pronounced by an angel in chapter 8, verse 13. Just flip the page back to the left, 
And look at chapter 8, verse 13. After the blast of the fourth trumpet, the angel said, or John says in verse 13, I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. So we put that in context. We've had the blast of four trumpets. Three trumpets remain, okay? Four plus three equals seven, seven trumpets total. Okay, we don't need Josh Dodge to do that math for us. We can do that. Um, uh, we know there are three trumpets left. The three woes correspond to those three trumpets. Um, the three woes are three exclamations, if you will, or expressions of misery. They're expressions of horror. They correspond to those judgments that are being poured out under the last three trumpets. As the trumpets are blasted, these three woes, these three events of judgment are being poured out upon unbelieving earth dwellers, and each woe is a pronouncement of the severe anguish, the severe misery. The word is literally uai, uai, uai. It's, it's, it's an exclamation, an interjection of misery and of woe, and each of those proclamations associated with the last of three trumpets. Now, if you remember, the first of those severe horrors occurred under the fifth trumpet in chapter 9, verse 1. And if you look at that text, chapter 9, verse 1, that blast of the trumpet announced or proclaimed the release of a demonic horde from the bottomless pit intended to torment unbelieving earth dwellers, right? those who had not received the seal of God on their foreheads. Darkness proceeds or pours forth out of the pit Darkness like a cloud falls upon the earth and demons are seen coming out of this dark cloud like a bunch of scorpions, right? It's a, it's a spiritual horde. It's a spiritual darkness out of the pit and it's a spiritual torment. These things are symbolic, hopelessness and despair. In other words, right? This darkness representing spiritual error, false religion, it's a spiritual torment, godless ideologies, uh, Romans 1 debasement, Romans 1 defilement. Revelation 9 describes it as a torment upon unbelievers. Uh, and to borrow language from Romans 1 again, it leads to vile passions, a debased mind, the uncleanness of their flesh. In other words, their debased thinking, these godless ideologies, the, their uncleanness, their iniquity, all of that is the judgment of God. It is the judgment of God. When you look around us today, we don't have to look at current political events and geopolitical things happening around the globe to try to interpret what Revelation is saying. You just have to look around us in everyday life. We see the judgment of God poured out everywhere all over the place, all the time. The fact that since, um, for example, Roe v. Wade became a thing in this country, the fact that there's been 60 million babies murdered by the plague of abortion is the judgment of God. It is the judgment of God. It's the sin of these people. It's the sin of unbelieving earth dwellers. But at the same time, their own sin, that culture of death is the judgment of God. The Bible mentions as a, as a judgment that God pours out pestilence. And we see a pestilence having been unleashed upon the earth in which just here recently, a million and a half people were killed, right? We just went through that. Everybody wearing masks. 
That is the judgment of God. This is the wrath of God. To borrow language from Romans chapter one, this is the wrath of God presently being revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. Let me give you one example. Let me give you one example among among many, okay? The National Institutes of Health. The National Institutes of Health, by the way, is a government institution. So you can take whatever they say with a grain of salt. (laughs) Consider the source, right? The National Institutes of Health published results of a study looking at the suicide rates and the suicidal behavior among transgender persons. They found, this is the National Institutes of Health, found that the suicide attempt rate among the transgender population ranges from 32 to 50%. Now think about that statistic for a moment. That's the National Institutes of Health reporting that among the transgender population, their suicide attempt rate runs 32, anywhere from 32 to 50%. And many of those before their 20th birthday. That's gender ideology represented. All right, that's what we would call today, what the you know, scholars call today gender ideology. It's a perverse ideology. That perverse ideology is the fruit of a debased mind. That perverse ideology is the fruit of a defiled mind. And ultimately, that ultimately, that demonic darkness, those doctrines of demons, leads to torment. It leads to hopelessness. It leads to despair. It leads to 32 to 50% of transgender people attempting suicide, many of them before their 20th birthday. Now the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, blames that suicide rate on external factors. Quote, gender-based victimization, discrimination, bullying, violence, being rejected by the family, friends, and community, harassment by an intimate partner, family members, police, and public, discrimination, ill-treatment at healthcare systems are the major risk factors that influence that suicidal behavior among transgender persons, close quote. In other words, they're not going to look at the thinking. They're not going to look at the ideology. They're not going to look inward. That person, that transgender person, is not personally responsible in any way. The ideology is entirely harmless. That ideology, that way of thinking, is not responsible. It's not perverse in any way. And the transgender person then is simply a victim. They're not responsible, they're a victim. Rather than looking at the ideology for what it is, looking at that way of thinking as a symptom of a debased mind or defiled way of thinking, and looking inward at what is causing the torment, namely looking at sin as the cause of torment, we look at external factors and blame them. All the while, right, instead of seeing rightly, that the demonic darkness inherent in that ideology is the source of their torment, it's in that state of mind that the message of God's witnesses in Revelation 11, for example, is seen as the source of their torment. Right? When somebody comes along and says, gender's not fluid, God made them at the beginning, male and female. Right? And that in following the Lord, there's joy and there's peace. Right? There's, um, it's truth for a reason. Truth has its source in God, God who is all good, omnibenevolent, God who knows what is good for us, right? God has withheld no good thing. God is good. And so rather than looking at God at good, looking at that 
that ideology as the source of their torment, what do they do? They look at the message of God's witnesses as the source of their torment. So in chapter 11, verse 10, they rejoice over the death of God's witnesses because they tormented those who dwell on the earth. And it's that message that is a torment. It's truth that is a torment to those who are believing the lie. So rather than turn and repent then of that state of debasement, which is the actual root of their despair and their hopelessness, they lash out when their conscience accuses them under the light of God's law. And they instead, they proverbially, proverbially kill the messenger is what they do. And they will do that as um, calling them bigots, uh, all kinds of ugly names. So when they believe in Revelation 11, then when they believe that they have effectively silenced their witness in the marketplace of this world, they the guilty, those unbelieving earth dwellers, those who have believed the lie, rejoice over them. Verse 10, they make merry, they send gifts to one another until the truth of God and the people of God are vindicated at the return of Jesus Christ. And that party comes to an end. Now that's one example. That's one example. And the examples are myriad. The examples are manifold. We see those judgments associated with the first woe being poured out now. That gender ideology, transgenderism, is not only a sin of unbelievers, it's a sin, uh, it's, a, um, it's a judgment of, of God upon this world. It's the same thing in Romans 1, for example, of homosexuality. Homosexuality is a sin, homosexuality is a judgment of God. These judgments, not just physical judgments, including pestilence or war, death, but they're also spiritual um, judgments being poured out, hopelessness, despair, error, false religion. All of that during the first half of Daniel's 70th week. All these judgments then are typological of this age. They fit the pattern of this age. They reveal a pattern during this age that will climax at the end of history. These sorrows, these birth pains or contractions will increase. They'll get worse and worse until the end, until a final and severe iteration of that pattern representing the high water mark of this world's sin will usher in the great and terrible day of God's judgment. In those days, immediately after the tribulation of those days, you'll see the son of man appear on the clouds of heaven. Amen? It's, um, that's how this ties together between, for example, Daniel's 70th week in Daniel chapter nine, Matthew 24 and the Lord's Olivet Discourse with his disciples and our study of Revelation chapter 11 on Sunday evenings. The second of those severe woes is represented by the judgments poured out under the sixth trumpet then. You'll see that in chapter nine, verses 13 through 21. A judgment poured out upon unbelieving earth dwellers in which a third of mankind, for example, is killed. And although that death of mankind, a death of a third of mankind certainly involves physical death, and we see death all around us. We have to remember that these judgments also have a spiritual referent at well. We're not speaking only of physical death. We're speaking of spiritual death, spiritual darkness, spiritual idolatry, false religion, fatal errors in the professing church. All of that leads to spiritual death. And again, if you think about examples of that, they're myriad, they're manifold in our day right now as these judgments are being poured out. Untold millions Millions have been killed. We've seen two world wars amidst a handful, a host of other wars 
We've seen a Maoist revolution in China kill millions of people, countless millions dead under the plague of abortion. And if you think about those physical examples of death all over the globe, what about all the spiritual examples that we see? How many, how many have been led to hell, spiritual death, by false religion, by deceit? How many, right? How many have been led to hell by Hindus, Buddhists? But not only Hindus and Buddhists, how many Roman Catholics? How many Roman Catholics? How many, how many have died resting in the notion that they asked Jesus into their heart rather than truly resting in the person and work of Jesus Christ. How many? How many have been led down a primrose path, that broad path that leads to destruction? How many have walked that path to their own deaths, believing the lie? Untold millions, millions. It is the judgment of God. The judgment of God being poured out, Revelation chapter 11, during this age. Men willfully follow doctrines of demons. That's not, a, that's not an innocent mistake, mind you. To, to believe the lie, it's not an innocent mistake. We're guilty, guilty of believing the lie. Men willfully follow the doctrines of demons. Men willfully refuse to tear down the idolatrous high places. Right, that they work, where they worship under every high place and under every green tree. They refuse to tear down the high places they've erected in the court of the temple that they're trampling even now under their own feet. Those courts of the temple that are right around, up against next to the most holy place. They stand outside the most holy place presuming to worship God. And yet they're on the broad road which leads to destruction. Many, 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 the Lord says in that day, will say, Lord, Lord, who will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Instead, instead of turning and trusting Jesus Christ in faith, chapter nine, verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. No one seems to wake up, like wake up and say to themselves, you know what? Things are such a wreck today. I think we're doing this wrong. There's something seriously wrong. And not only that, there's something seriously wrong with me. I'm in torment. I'm in despair. I have no hope. I don't know where I'm going to go when I die, right? Nobody wakes up to think about these things. They don't repent. The outpouring of those plagues should cause any reasonable person to say, Something is seriously wrong. It is the judgment of God being poured out on unbelieving earth dwellers. It's the judgment of God being poured out on this earth. And we see it all around us. We are immersed in it, as it were, as witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ, as lights that shine in a dark place. Now, this is what Paul meant in Romans 1 when he describes the wrath of God as presently being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. This is what Paul is talking about. It's a present ongoing outpouring of God's wrath. Everywhere you look, everywhere you look, you see overwhelming and abundant evidence of the judgment of God. You see that wrath being revealed in the outpouring of these three woes. The culture of death here and abroad is the judgment of God. Our culture steeped in the worst forms of sexual perversion is the judgment of God. Pornography on demand, even among children now, 
Bankrupt schools, the loss of any moral compass, crime skyrocketing, anger, strife, contention at all-time highs. But even more devastating is the spiritual darkness coming out of the pit of false religion. And this is what Paul meant here in Romans 1, where he describes the unrighteous as suppressing the truth of God in their unrighteousness. He says they did not repent of the work of, works of their hands. They did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. We should be incredulous at that. You and I should be incredulous that we ever were so deceived, that we ever could look at things so wrongly. And it is by the grace of God that we see things differently now. If it weren't for the grace of God, I'd be in the same boat. You'd be in the same difficulty, the same trouble. Revelation chapter 11, verse 14, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. As we've seen, the events that unfold under the outpouring of the second woe, the blast of the sixth trumpet, those events bring us now to the very precipice of the end. We can see that or discern that uh, from the chronology of our text. The end of this cycle in the book of Revelation now, it includes the second half of Daniel's, excuse me, Daniel's 70th week. And that second half of Daniel's 70th week, including events that take place at the very end of redemptive history. In verse 11, John refers to the last three and a half days, those days shortened for the sake of the elect. And it refers here during those last three, three and a half days at the end of those days, when those three and a half days were completed, completed, it refers to the resurrection of the church. Those events that we know take place in the future at the very end of the age. Verse 12, it refers to the rapture of the church. Come up here. Right? As they ascend to heaven in a cloud, that's something that's going to take place at the very end of the age. Revelation thir- or chapter 11, verse 13 refers to that great earthquake again. We've seen that language before. It's language that has been indicative of the day of the Lord at the very end of the age. That language of an earthquake marks the beginning of the final judgment. Whenever God's going to pour out his judgments, we see it uh, typologically in the Old Testament when God is going to judge a nation or is going to judge Israel. We see reference there often to an earthquake the ground shaking, the sun not, not showing its light, right? stars falling from the sky, all of those cosmic disturbances, that is typological language that points forward to ultimate and final judgment. In other words, what's being communicated in that is that the judgments being poured out are iterations in a pattern. This is a pattern, this is typological judgment, and it should point you forward to a final day of judgment in which all of these things actually come to pass, okay? So we see that language of an earthquake. When you see language of an earthquake, you know it's foreshadowing, if you will, or portending the beginning of final judgment, a final judgment upon unbelieving earth dwellers. That final judgment at the end here, just before the blast or the blast of the seventh trumpet is the third woe. Now you see that, that same language again in verse 19. Look at verse 19 with me. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. We'll talk about what all that means. And there were, here it is, lightnings, noises, thunderings, and an earthquake and great hail. And again, reminiscent of those plagues poured out on, on Egypt. The chapter 10 told us the same. In chapter 10, 
You see those seven thunders, if you remember that part where John is being recommissioned and John hears those seven thunders utter their voices, right? John's about to write down what those seven thunders uttered, but in verse seven, it says, but in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he's about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants, the prophets. What is he speaking about there? He's speaking about a time of the end, those seven thunders portending a judgment to be poured out at the end. And John's told not to write. Why isn't he to write? He's not to write because these are things that pertain to the very end of the age. Where in verse seven there, in chapter 10, verse seven, they pertain to that time when the seventh angel would sound his trumpet and the mystery of God would be finished, right? God's redemptive plans and purposes would be brought to completion. So just like the cycle of seals, Just like that cycle represented this age from the first coming of Jesus Christ to his return, just like that cycle, the cycle of seals, took us to the very end of the age and the beginning of final judgment, uh, this cycle of trumpets does the very same thing. If you remember at the end of the seals in chapter eight, the prayers of the saints there are ascending into heaven. And then verse five, the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar and threw it to the earth. It's an act of judgment. And there were, again, this is at the very end of the age, at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, there were noises, thunderings, lightning, and an earthquake. Same, very same language. That's, that should sound familiar to you, right? We've heard that language before. That language brought us to the end of the cycle of seals. The very same language brings us to the end of the cycle of trumpets. And if you put that together in your mind, it really helps you understand how the book of Revelation is written. There are these cycles, right? Each cycle deals with the time between the first coming and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you're looking at those cycles, you see a beginning and an end to each of those cycles, the end marked by this very language. There were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake, and here, great hail. This should help to confirm for you the structure of the book. There are those who want to see the book as a constant chronology from beginning to end. If you look at the book that way, you're not going to understand Revelation. Right? These are cycles, seven cycles in total, each of them beginning and ending, each of them covering the same basic period of time. We call it um, progressive parallelism. Right? Each cycle paralleling the same amount of time, but each one pressing us further and further closer to the end. A progressive parallelism. Uh, others have called it recapitulation. Really important to being able to understand the book. You need that structure you know, established in your mind to be able to understand where we're at in the book and what's going on. Now, what is then announced as woe and anguish and misery and judgment upon unbelievers is at the very same time a day of ultimate and final victory for the Lord Jesus Christ who returns in triumph. Look at verse 15 then, verse 15. We begin here, this, this uh, account of the third woe begins with a celebration before we get to the woe part, okay? Verse 15, then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Has that happened yet? No, these things are still yet future, okay? This particular part of this cycle is still yet future. Now, certainly those loud voices proclaiming in heaven are the voices of angels, right? The angels are shouting in triumph. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. But just as certainly as those voices include the angels, 
Those voices include the church also. Remember the innumerable multitude gathered around the throne, worshiping and praising God? Certainly, they are shouting too. And if you or I die before the Lord Jesus Christ comes back, our voices will be counted with theirs. We're going to be shouted, shouting at this point in time, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. We're gonna be celebrating with them. Now, before we see reference to the woe, then in verses 18 and 19, we're given a glimpse of this celebration that takes place in heaven. At this point in the cycle, if you think with me, the testimony of his witnesses has come to an end. The mystery of God has been finished, as it were. His redemptive plans and purposes are coming to a close. All that he has declared to his servants, the prophets, has come to pass. All this is told to us in Revelation 10, Revelation 11. All that has been decreed concerning this world has now come to its consummated end. The enemies of his kingdom have been defeated. And so what happens at this point? The long-awaited messianic kingdom promised in the Old Testament has now come. Right? That promised messianic kingdom has now come. Whenever you read your Old Testament and you see promises, it's, it's throughout the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, there is this promise of a restored kingdom, a restored people, a kingdom of everlasting righteousness. Whenever you read in the Old Testament concerning that kingdom, this is that kingdom. Right? This is what we're waiting for. This was the hope of the Jewish people. Throughout that Old Testament period, it's the hope of the church throughout all history is this restored kingdom in which righteousness dwells, in which the, mess, the Messiah, the Messianic King will rule and reign from the throne. This is the kingdom we've been waiting for. The time has come here at the sounding of the seventh trumpet. Although it's an outpouring of judgment upon unbelieving earth dwellers, it's a time for the everlasting kingdom to be finally consummated. That kingdom which shall never pass away. It's the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. His kingdom was inaugurated in his victory over the grave. His kingdom inaugurated at his resurrection. When he ascended into heaven, he received the kingdom and all authority in heaven and on earth was given to him. That kingdom is inaugurated. That's the kingdom that is in existence right now. We're not waiting on a future physical millennial reign on the earth, the Lord Jesus Christ is ruling now over his kingdom. That kingdom has been inaugurated. It will one day at his return be consummated. It will be established forever. Verses 16 through 17 is a celebration of that fact. Verse 16, the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones, they fell on their faces and they worshiped God saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is, who was, and who is to come. Why? Why? Because you have taken your great power and you have reigned. What's been going on right now since then? He's given authority over this world to someone else temporarily. But at this point in time, he takes his great power and with his great power, he reigns. Now, let me give you a couple of observations on this particular point. First, notice the use of the past tense. You have taken your great power and past tense reigned. It's called a prophetic perfect. The vision given to John depicts events so certain that they are described as an already accomplished fact. The reason that they're communicated in that way lies in the fact that these decrees, these determinations have been ordained by God. God 
has determined that these things will come to pass. And so because God is unchanging and because God's will, God's purpose is unchanging, they are certain because God himself cannot lie and God himself is faithful to his word. He will bring them to pass. They are as certain as if, as how already taking place. We discuss the same concept in Paul's use of the prophetic past in Romans chapter eight, verse 30. When Paul says, those whom he has justified, these he also glorified. Past tense. The glorification of his people is something that God has determined. And because God has determined it, it is as good as done. It is as though it were already accomplished. Second observation. There's a significant, there is significant Greek manuscript support for the fact that kingdoms in verse 15 should be singular. That it's actually kingdom there. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Now if that's true, and I believe it is, then John isn't speaking geopolitically. <laughs> He's not even speaking geographically. John is referring to that ultimate kingdom in which all of those worldly kingdoms consist. That's why the fourth beast in Daniel, for example, has 10 horns. 10 is a number of completion. Speaking of all the kings that rule on this earth, they're all a part of that fourth kingdom, okay? The kingdom of Babylon. It's the kingdom of darkness. It's the kingdom of Satan, the usurper. Daniel's fourth kingdom in Daniel chapter seven. The ruler of this world is Satan who has set up his kingdom in opposition to the kingdom of God. It's that kingdom. In taking his reign over this kingdom, God is taking to himself rule that was formerly given to Satan. It was formerly handed over to the ruler of this world, the prince of this age. If you remember, many interesting points related to that fact. When Satan intended to tempt Christ in the wilderness, you remember that account of the temptation of Jesus Christ in Luke chapter four, one of the ways in which Satan tempted Jesus Christ was by offering him all of the kingdoms of this world. It's interesting. Turn with me to Luke four. Let's look at that together quickly. Uh, Luke chapter four. Satan is tempting the Lord Jesus Christ and it's not an idol. It's not a hypothetical circumstance here. The kingdoms of this world are under the sway of the wicked one. Uh, they've been given over into his hand, so to speak, for a purpose. Luke chapter four, verse five. Then the devil, taking him, the Lord Jesus Christ, up on a high mountain, he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give to you. Now, how is it that the devil could say such a thing? Because authority of those, over those kingdoms had been given into his hand, right? The devil, those, those kingdoms, the kingdoms of this world are under the sway of the wicked one. He says, all, the, all this authority I will give to you and their glory for this has been delivered to me. Now, did he take that for himself? No, it's been delivered to him. By whom? By God, again, for a purpose. And Satan says, I'll give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world. All can be yours. Jesus answered and said to him, get behind me, Satan. You'd rather not have those words spoken to you, but we see them again <laughs> in the, spoken to Peter. It's, it's, 
just awful, terrible uh, words. Get behind me, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. So Satan had been given rule and authority over this world. This was no empty offer. Satan wanted the ultimate coup. He wanted the ultimate mutiny. He sought it by attempting to win over the son of God. Now Satan, think with me, Satan had already won over the first Adam. So what happened in the garden? It was a mutiny, a mutiny. And Satan won over the first Adam. Satan's gonna take his shot at the second, the last Adam, the great Adam. Satan was after the last Adam, Adam and all of his. Praise God that Jesus Christ does not give heed to coup attempts. Amen? <laughs> Jesus Christ pays no attention to mutinies. You and I, brothers and sisters, we are by nature accomplices in this treachery. By nature, we were all born to that first Adam. By nature, children of our father, the devil, sons of disobedience, children of wrath, as the rest. We are by nature accomplices to this treachery. We were born in sin. And when we were in sin, when we were rebels, rebels against the Lord Jesus Christ, like Satan, we assaulted the sovereignty and authority of God to rule and reign. We were members of that kingdom. We were, remember, we were members of the kingdom of darkness, citizens of hell. We were challenging God's rule. We are citizens of darkness when we belong to Satan, the usurper. It's in the gospel of his son that God offers freely an invitation to enter the kingdom of the son of his love. It's in the gospel that God invites us to acknowledge our rebellion against his kingdom, against his right to rule, and to turn from that rebellion, to put our faith in Jesus Christ before we die and become citizens of that kingdom forever. For those who place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us, transferred us into the kingdom of the son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. In, when you come to Jesus Christ in faith, the spirit of God uniting us to the Lord Jesus Christ, we're conveyed from one kingdom to another kingdom. We're transferred. There's a transfer of ownership. There's a transfer of citizenship. There's a transfer of identity, a transfer of union. We're delivered to this kingdom that is being established. So with all of that, the nations may rage. The people may plot all sorts of vain things. The kings of the earth may set themselves. The rulers of these tin horn kingdoms may take their counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. All of them saying together, let us break their bonds in pieces. Let us cast their cords from us. That's what our rulers are saying. That's what our rulers are saying. Don't be fooled by that. They're saying, I'll not have that man to rule over me. We'll not have him to rule over us. Cast their cords from you. They may gloat over their apparent victories. They may rejoice in the streets when God's people are persecuted. They'll stand on the courts of the Supreme Court building, cheering, holding up their signs, proclaiming victory as if the Supreme Court is the one who is the judge of all the living and the dead. They'll gloat, they'll rejoice. It's all simply evidence of the great battle that Satan, their father, is waging through them. 
waging against God and against his saints. And again, in Psalm chapter two, verse four, he who sits in the heavens observing all of this laughs. He holds them in derision. He shall speak to them in his wrath. He shall distress them in his deep displeasure. That is the outpouring of God's judgment during this age. That is the outpouring of the third woe. That is the blast of the trumpets. That is the opening of the seals. That is the tribulation that even God's people, the church, experience during this great age of tribulation that takes place in the time between the Lord's coming, first coming and his return. God says, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. When? When did God set his king upon his holy hill? When did that take place? It says there in Psalm 2, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. The New Testament says that that was fulfilled at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ was begotten, as it were, as king over all the nations, all the earth, when he was raised from the dead. Ask of me, God says, to the son. Ask of me, I will give you the nations for your inheritance. When did the Lord Jesus Christ approach the ancient of days to ask such a a thing? Daniel chapter seven tells us, right? Revelation chapter four, Revelation chapter five tells us. Ask of me, I will give you the nations for your inheritance, the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. The Lord Jesus Christ reigns now, amen? He reigns now. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ has now received his inheritance. All authority has been given to him. And we see that take place. We'll see it when we get to Revelation chapter 12. Listen to Revelation chapter 12, verse seven. See if you can fit this in with what we've heard already. In Revelation chapter 12, verse seven, war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought. Who's that dragon? We know the Bible tells us. He's that serpent of old, Satan. So the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer until Jesus Christ was victorious over them at the cross. Where could Satan be found? We found him in the very throne room of heaven, walking around with the other angels in the book of Job, for example, right? He's there. Well, here, this war takes place when the man shows up. (laughs) when the man comes to town, uh, he shows up, all authority is given to him. There's no room for Satan in heaven any longer. And he is cast out. He did not prevail, nor was place found for him in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Why? The Lord Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the majesty. Doing what? Ruling. (laughs) ruling over his kingdom that has been inaugurated. Verse 10, then I heard a loud voice uh, saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ has come. His kingdom inaugurated at the resurrection. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony and they did not love their lives to the death. Why? Because they offered themselves up as a sacrifice, living, holy, and acceptable to God, which was their reasonable service of worship. 
Do you see? Verse 12, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. Woe to those who dwell on the earth. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. Why is there so much sin? Why is sin so prevalent? The devil has come down having great wrath. And God is pouring out his judgments upon this earth. Men suppress the truth of God in their unrighteousness, in righteousness, evil, evil men and imposters, they grow worse and worse and worse. Let me ask you tonight in closing, which kingdom do you belong to? Which kingdom do you belong to? Have you been set free? Have you been conveyed out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of the son of his love? Do you serve this kingdom or do you serve that one? Where's your heart? Do you find enjoyment in this kingdom or that kingdom? Do you find fulfillment? Do you find acceptance? Do you find a common friendship? Do you find similar thinking? Do you find similar joy, similar desires, similar affections? similar hopes, similar aspirations? Do you find those in that kingdom or do you find them in his kingdom? Which kingdom do you belong to? Satan's kingdom or do you belong to the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ? Where is your treasure? An invitation is extended to you to be a part of the Lord's kingdom. There's a great, a great wedding feast being planned where the bride will be presented to her bridegroom. A wedding feast at the end of the age when God will gather to, to himself all of his elect, all of those that make up his bride, and they'll all come together at the wedding and celebrate. All things are being prepared. The meal is being prepared. The mansion's being prepared in heaven. The places for us where we'll be with him forever. There'll be a new heavens and a new earth prepared, descending out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. There'll be joy everlasting at his right side. Where will you be? When that wedding supper is consummated, when that day comes, where will you be? Will you be cast out? Will you find your place with those kings and princes from the kingdoms of this world, cast into eternal fire with the devil and his angels? Or will you find yourself seated at the table in the everlasting kingdom, worshiping and praising the Lord Jesus Christ? Joys everlasting, where will you be? In great grace, in immeasurable mercy, God says to you, you can't do anything to work your way there. You can't do anything to earn it. You must simply put your faith and your trust in him. Put your faith and your trust in him. He is the one who will usher you into his own kingdom through faith in union with himself. A son, a son because you're an inheritor. You become a joint heir with Jesus Christ. You inherit with him as a firstborn son would inherit. Nothing withheld from you. What will you do? Will you persist in reveling in Babylon with all those unbelieving earth dwellers who rage against him in this world? Or will you acknowledge your sin? Will you see it for the 
bankrupt condition that it is? And will you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, waiting upon him and waiting upon that kingdom? Whose kingdom will you be in? <laughs> what are you waiting for? Right? What do you want? Where's your hope? Put your faith in Jesus Christ, amen? Amen, pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we rejoice at that offer. We praise you and thank you uh, for the blessing, the blessing, the, the immeasurable grace and mercy that is extended to us in an offer to be citizens of that kingdom in union with our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, God, that you would open the eyes of those who can't see it or won't see it, that you would unplug their ears, that you would free them from their stubbornness, free them from their intransigence, free them from their obstinate unbelief. You would open their eyes so that they might see things as they are. Like you opened the eyes of Elisha's servant so that he could see the armies of heaven. And may they catch a vision of our Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom, that they would turn from their sin. They would see the, the utter, utter, utter foolishness of persisting as citizens of that kingdom. And they would long for you, would long for the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. They would turn from their sin and put their faith and trust in him. And they would be made a part of his bride, adopted sons in his household, inheritors with Christ. We know, Lord, that is for our eternal good. And we praise you and we thank you for it with just grateful hearts, Lord. We worship you and we serve you and we obey you and we love you. But Lord, ultimately for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, for the glory of our God. You are worthy of such praise. You are worthy of being extolled, worthy of all glory, honor, praise, blessing, power, might, dominion. We thank you and we look forward more to the consummation of this kingdom in eternity. We will praise you forever as sons of the kingdom. We love you, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hello, and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.